Yeah, I sucked at it. I was, it was super difficult. It was the most difficult thing I've ever done. But I don't expect to be comfortable. I don't expect to, stuff to be easy. I expected it to be really hard, and it was. So I was like, all right, that was bad. I sucked again today. We'll try again tomorrow. It, it was just normal for me. Yes, you're always going to be really bad at stuff the first time you try. So that was normal to me. I've done that many times. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community, undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone and you don't have to wait for others. Today's episode with guest Brad P, a dating coach and guru, well, former since he's mostly moved on, as he'll share, partly reveal a major part of my social and emotional development as an adult. He was, in a sense, my boss when I coached mostly men, but a few women, on dating and attraction skills, which I did before coaching executives, entrepreneurs, and so on, on leadership, initiative, entrepreneurship, and more mainstream things. I'm sharing a long introduction because there's extraordinary misconception about coaching, dating, and attraction, especially for men. In my experience, it improved my relationships in every part of my life more than nearly anything. Some people, though, see what they want to see, and they see other things, like creepiness or misogyny, which couldn't be further from my experience, except as a way out of those things. While I haven't kept it formally secret, I haven't shared it publicly, though I tell all my coaching clients soon after starting working with them, since it opens up the coaching relationship and makes for faster and deeper improvement. I've also shared it with my family. My leadership practice is so based in openness and facing and handling vulnerability that I had to share this part of my life, not sharing it was keeping me back from sharing myself. Nearly everyone I've shared it with is mainly intrigued, also supportive, and some men and women, particularly in business, have loved this stuff, especially in sales, consulting, lots of business things. But the media covers people who like to create controversy, so I feared attacks, however unsupported. Well, I can't live in fear of people with misunderstandings and grudges. Anyone who follows my history close enough knows I spent a couple weeks in North Korea with Neil Strauss, who published a chapter of my first book on his blog, and Jordan Harbinger, both of whom were major figures in teaching dating and attraction skills a while ago. They both transitioned to major mainstream success, helping people improve their lives and create community. And I intend to follow in their success. I also interviewed on this podcast, Chase Amante, a very good friend who runs a dating advice webpage. With all of them, they go back at least a decade, which means our friendships arose at the height of the period after Neil's bestseller, The Game. Why was The Game interesting to me? For most of my adult life, certainly as a graduate student in physics and founding my first company in business school, I had little intimacy with women, by which I mean emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, and intellectual intimacy. Reading Neil's book, I learned that men and women could develop their social and emotional skills of attraction, dating, and relationships. I just didn't know that you could before. I thought you just had to act like yourself, which you could not change. Sadly, people deeply misunderstand the community. They see creepy guys trying to learn to meet women and think learning to meet women makes them creepy. Meanwhile, every supermarket checkout aisle I've been through has magazines teaching women ways to make themselves more attractive. There are almost no mainstream resources for men. People see correlation and confuse the cause and effect. Society depriving men of ways to learn social and emotional skills leads to many appearing creepy before they ever find out about this community. Teaching them attraction doesn't make them creepy. Being shunned leaves them no alternatives, so they come to the few places that offer them to help. 
depriving them of help by attacking coaches who would help them condemns them to staying the same, the opposite of what, as far as I know, anybody wants. In my experience, men with poor social skills can blossom with some training. Since I worked in this community in my late 30s and 40s, I worked with a lot of divorced men who didn't know how to put themselves out there. They felt helpless without resources. Granted, there were guys anyone would call creepy that I didn't see how to help. But as far as I could tell, they didn't become creepy because someone who learned attraction skills tried to teach them. They were creepy before that. This is just one example, or these are a couple examples, of the misunderstanding that made the community underground. Any initiative to help men, as far as I can tell, some people will call misogynist. The label sticks no matter how inaccurate. So these are some of the reasons I felt scared, and still feel scared, to share that I jumped into learning attraction and dating and relationship skills. Actually, there's a long story to this, but the short version is, in business school, I did the class play, which was called Follies. I hadn't been on stage since the class play in, I think, third grade. So I had very little experience before going up on stage. I was so nervous to get on stage to the point of wanting to throw up. But then when I got on stage, delivered my lines, and the audience reacted and laughed, and then the applause after, I was elated. It was one of the biggest shifts from extreme anxiety to extreme elation that I'd ever experienced. And combined with some other things that I'd learned in business school, it pointed me to seeing a pattern that the things that were the greatest parts of my life generally entered my life as the greatest sources of anxiety. So that led me to start looking for the greatest sources of anxiety to see if, if I worked on them, could they become great things in my life? Following the class play, we had the cast party. It was karaoke. And I noticed singing was something that people really love singing. I had poor singing skills. I had to get really, really drunk. But I had so much fun when I was singing that I thought, this is something I'm going to work on. I talked to a friend of mine who was a brilliant singer. And I asked her, how could I improve in singing? And she said, just sing a lot. And she was like, sing on camera and so forth. So I sang to my video camera. I'd sing in the shower. I'd sing when I was going to sleep at night. And then my friend gave me a copy of Neil's book, and I realized, as anxious as singing made me, the idea of approaching women and improving my relationships with women, becoming intimate, allowing myself to be vulnerable with women, that was the greatest source of anxiety that I could identify. So I said, this is something I'm going to work on. And I made it one of my top priorities, to improve my relationships with women. My goal was to become a coach, which I felt would make a nice finishing line of mastery of these social and emotional skills, plus would mean I would be able to help others. For years, I didn't tell anyone outside of the small group of mostly men, but also some women. Ironically, around this time, my mom started saying how my communication and presentation skills developed, how I related with people better than she had seen before. Friends started telling me my leadership skills were developing, and they started advising me to coach leadership, which I did. I told people the improvement in social and emotional skills that they saw arose from business school leadership classes, but those classes were academic and only showed me what skills to learn. They taught me about these things, but not the actual practice. Here, in this world of dating and attraction and relationship skills, I learned to practice these skills, and they improved all my relationships, all of them, because I didn't just learn how to approach women. I learned how to allow myself to be vulnerable, how to make others feel comfortable opening up with me, nonverbal communication, value, the flow of value, and all sorts of things critical to leadership, entrepreneurship, sales, and all relationships, social and emotional skills. I also unlearned many beliefs and behaviors that mainstream society had taught me like to put women on pedestals or get a good house, get a good car, get a good job, and you'll be happy. I'm going on too long. There are over a decade of details in one of the most important parts of my life. You can sense I'm a bit defensive from the misunderstandings that I've seen, often willful. So there's a lot of it, and I can't go over it all now. But briefly, back to Brad, my guest. I took a year-long course with him and then tried to become a coach for him. And after he brought me on as a coach for him, he once said, men who lack social skills in attracting and dating women tend to use excuses as crutches. So he wanted a coach for every excuse. He wanted a ball coach, a short coach, an Asian coach, and so on. He looked at me and said, 
you're my old coach. So I became one of his coaches in New York. In time, I moved up to become the number one coach in the number one city for the number one guru, as Brad had been voted the number one guru by a website or two. I like the sound of that number one stuff, but more than that, I like most of all that there are men and women out there who've told me that they owe their relationships and confidence with others to my coaching them. And my current coaching clients for leadership, initiative, entrepreneurship, and so on, benefit too. All right, this has gone on for a while. All this talk could make an episode of its own. Sorry to go on so long. Here's number one attraction and dating guru, my friend and colleague, Brad P. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Brad P. Brad, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Josh? I'm very good. And I was just talking before, I'm not sure how to begin this because there's so much to talk about here. And so Brad P., for those who don't know, is it safe to say that you were the number one guru for teaching men attraction? Is that the right way to put it? Sure. Yeah. And you're a humble man as well. (laughs) (laughs) But you were voted that, I think. And so people who don't know, there's a world out there of, of teaching men attraction and how to meet women and things like that. And Brad is... I think, are you retired or you, you've kind of phased out of it? Yeah, pretty much phased out of it now. There's not that many students learning it anymore. So I think my job is done. <laughs> you, you single-handedly taught, well, a lot of guys. So I guess maybe you must have gotten started 15, 20 years ago. And maybe you can say, do you mind sharing how you got into it? I'm sure you've shared that story many times, but not yeah, to the audience. So, yeah, I was... I had very poor uh, results in dating when I was younger, poor results in high school. I didn't have one single date with any girls from my school. I tried to fix it in college. I decided to go to college that was 80% women and it didn't really work. I had like a little bit of success, um, but still not great. And then I moved to New York City and the dating landscape there was a bit more difficult than a college that's 80% women. So then it was just like long, dry spells, you know? And I had done a lot of stuff to try to get women to notice me. I had played sports and I was captain of the basketball team in high school. And I was learned to play guitar and I was playing in some, you know, rock bands like low on the local level and nothing, nothing was working. I found out later it was because I wasn't, you know, making the first move enough or, or putting out a dominant uh, style of a personality. But I, I figured, you know, Guys who play sports and music do well with women, but for whatever reason, it didn't work for me. So I was getting categorized as a nice guy a lot. Girls would say, I don't want to go on a date with you. You're so nice, which was very confusing to me. So after you know X amount of years of this, I just kind of hit a breaking point And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go find out how to do this. I'm going to ask someone who's better than me at it. And I'm going to try to get good at it. I've learned to get good at other things. I can probably get good at this. And I just start working on it every day. Um, And I just go out and hit on girls and see what happens. (laughs) So, you know, after... This is well after college. Just a couple years after college? This is like, let me see, got to be seven or eight years after college. So I was like almost 30 when this was happening. And so a lot of guys by 30, half their life, they've been dating women and having relationships and having their ups and downs and things like that. Yeah. For me, it was like, you know, I, my dating experience at that age was probably one tenth of what the average guy has. You know, I had had like a few girlfriends, but 
I don't know. I just had a lot of trouble meeting women. I get, you know, once or twice a year, I would be able to like meet a girl and get her phone number. And then I just try calling her for a few weeks and it would usually not work. So yeah, I knew something was wrong. I was very in touch with the fact that something was wrong. I wasn't under the impression that I was doing great and I got this and don't need to worry about it. I was, I was really concerned about it, honestly. Because I just didn't know why it was happening. And I had to do a lot of research and I read some books and things. And I, you know, there was a bunch of books I started reading and I was like, oh, that's not it. And I eventually read this book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. It's from Dr. Robert Glover. And that book was pretty helpful for me getting started because it kind of just put its finger on the exact problem. I had something called Nice Guy Syndrome. As I traced it back, it was a result of me growing up in an environment where there was a lot of alcoholism. Uh, So people who have a lot of alcoholism in their family will tend to not voice their own needs very much, and they are not very assertive, and they they just kind of stay out of the way and lay low for the most part. So that was what was going on with me, and there's low self-worth that goes with it. Um, And so I tried to trace that back, see how I could fix it, and just implement all of the things that I read in that book. So among other things, one thing that he said in that book was that if you want to go out and flirt with women, you can just do it. You can just go out and hit on girls and try to flirt with girls. And it's not like illegal and it's not a problem. People do it. And this had not dawned on me before I read that. And so that was the part where I actually was like, oh, okay, I'm allowed to do that. All right, here we go. And I just started going out uh, seven days a week and and just hitting on girls and approaching them and stuff. And it wasn't very difficult, especially at first, but I wasn't going to give up. You know, the guy in the book said, you're allowed to do it. So I decided to do it until I got good at it. And along the way, I met some people who were already good at it and they gave me, you know, a huge amount of help and learning the right way. Cause there were so many dead ends, you know, hundreds of dead ends for every one thing you find that works. Uh, so can I, can I ask you a few questions? Sure. So you were in a nice guy, the nice guy syndrome, it, it led you to hang back and kind of just observe without actively doing things. Did I get that right? Yeah. In my case, it manifested as social anxiety. So I would tend to avoid social situations and I would try to avoid talking to people. So yeah, hang back. And so when the No More Mr. Nice Guy book said, you can actually do this, did it take a lot of getting over? I mean, it's one thing to say you can, it's another thing to feel comfortable doing it or eager to do it. And was it just like flipping a switch or was it just like, oh, I can do that? I didn't realize I could, why don't I? Well, or were yeah. you also just sucking at it? <laughs> yeah, I sucked at it. I was, it was super difficult. It was the most difficult thing I've ever done. But- I don't expect to be comfortable. I don't expect stuff to be easy. I expected it to be really hard and it was. So I was like, all right, that, that was bad. I sucked again today. We'll try again tomorrow. It was just normal for me. In that sense, was it like, if you were captain of a, of teams, that must've involved a lot of work and practice and discipline and things like that. So did, did stuff from there apply? Like the, the work ethic? Yeah. Yes. You're always going to be really bad at stuff the first time you try. So that was normal to me. I've done that many times. Okay. And then when you said you came across people who were good at it, or these are people who were, they just didn't grow up being nice guys or they, they practiced or was it also women or like, who are they? Well, they were usually guys who had learned it 
in their teenage years, usually from like guys who are a little bit older, like they started hitting on girls around 14 or 15 because they had an older brother or something who was 17 or 18. And the older brother would kind of say, Hey, do that, do this. And, you know, guys um, have a way of sort of teaching each other and modeling each other. And they had just learned it earlier than me. Everybody has to learn it. It doesn't really come easy to anyone. And there's this misconception that, you know, some guys just naturally have it or they don't have to try. But in my opinion, these were guys who just learned it earlier than me. And they had many, many years of practice. They just forgot how they learned it. They knew how they learned it too. Yeah. There's a lot of overlap between learning, well, learning any performance-based activity, which could be acting or singing. And for me, since I teach leadership and entrepreneurship, I think there's a lot of people out there that people look at them and say, they're just a natural leader. But I think that sometimes if you got a billion people in the world, some people are going to get leadership challenges when they're young. Some of them will get leadership challenges that are really hard too early. And they just feel like, I can't do this. This is impossible. I can't believe anyone knows how to do this. And they give up and no one can blame them because it's really hard. But some of them get really easy leadership challenges early on and some of them, and then, and they can handle them. And then a little bit later, they'll get a more modest leadership challenge. And because they did the easier one earlier, they can do the medium one. And then later they'll get some harder ones. And I think some people accidentally, life just gives them the right challenges in the right order. And next thing they know, they're really good at something and it just feels natural. I'm not saying that's all the cases, but- um, I think that did happen for me. Yeah? On leadership or with the- Indirectly on leadership. uh, When I was uh, younger and I was playing sports in like ninth and 10th grade, I was fortunate to have some coaches that really took a direct interest in me and kept working with me even when I was bad. And that kind of made me feel like, you know, just because you're bad at something in the beginning doesn't mean you're going to be bad at it forever. You're, you're going to improve if you keep trying every day. And some of them were really very professional level coaches and athletes. Uh, when I was in 10th grade, my junior varsity basketball coach had this friend who was a major league baseball player. And this guy would come into the gym because it was winter and he just needed to get a workout and he'd play basketball with us. And he would tell me to stay after and he would just play me one-on-one, but super physical. And the objective was to toughen me up, you know? So me and this guy, I mean, the guy's in his twenties, peak physical condition and professional athlete, me and him are kind of just beating the crap out of each other on the basketball court. And it really did toughen me up, you know? And, and he asked me to stay after practice because he took a specific interest. And, you know, these coaches, they thought I had potential and they saw through the, you know, the mess that was before them at the time. That was me. And I got, they gave me the right challenges at the right time. Like you, like you said. So if someone just knew a little bit about you and didn't know these things, they might guess, oh, he's just a natural. And it's not necessarily the case that people share all the things that make them who they are. And so I think there's a lot of people out there and they don't know that. I think everyone goes through things like this. Like, the Iron Lady, that movie about um, Margaret Thatcher. There's a scene where she's learning acting techniques and like how to do voice stuff. And I think a lot of people would say, that's not what, that's not really how leaders, that's like some trickery or something like that. But I think great leaders go through all these little things that they learn. And a lot of people take, they take for granted incorrectly that they didn't 
practice and work at these things. But I think all these great effective behaviors come from work and practice. I agree. I think there is an aptitude for it that, it, and it's a factor, you know, um, everybody has a varying aptitude of how good they're going to be at leadership or sports or whatever. But there, this idea of being a natural, it's an illusion and the illusion serves the most proficient people. And so they proliferate the illusion to intimidate the competition. Now, I want to, I want to pause for a second in your development where we are is that you were getting started and you were learning from some people who had learned at a younger age. And now I got to put some context here that I think when the media writes about stuff, the world that we're talking about, they often conflate a lot of different worlds. And how do you characterize the field we're talking about? I usually say it's like dating, coaching, or learning attraction, usually for men. What is it for you? How do you describe it? You know, I'm not too picky about how people understand it. Everybody comes to this, you know, classroom for a different reason. When I was learning it, it was just a way for me to get over my nice guy syndrome. Um, so you were just, you, it was you and some people in your, that you came across and the internet wasn't so big at the time. I didn't have a computer at the time. So yeah, the internet wasn't so big. So, all right. So, and then it, and it evolved from there. So that's interesting. So it's, it, it's, um you kind of learn stuff on your own that for me, I had to, it all started for me that I learned that there was a whole world out there, but you came in in a totally different way. Yeah. It was literally just a book made of, you know, paper and cardboard. And then I decided to try to run with that. And then when I met some other people that were into it, you know, it was really a face-to-face learning process with them. And it was also a learn by doing kind of approach. You just kind of go out there, you know, my, my agenda was, you know, in the beginning, I just wanted to see what I, if I could do it and if it would happen, what would happen. And then as I started to get more experience, I had like kind of a to-do list every time I would go out. I was like, all right, I'm going to try these three things. You know, one of my friends told me it might work. I'm going to try it 10 times so I don't get any, you know, false positives or whatever. And then try to just build something that works today. If I can build one little piece that works today... I'll try to build another little piece that works tomorrow. So when you said you didn't have a computer, I was a little thrown for a second because I was like, this guy's nerdy, but now <laughs> the nerd comes out. <laughs> yeah, it's a sign. It's just not in a computer way. <laughs> not in a computer way. I think it was like 2003 or so. I think my brother had a computer, so I would use his computer once in a while. But I did, it's not like I had my own laptop and could really do much. Like my total computer usage may have been like a couple of hours a week, you know? Okay, so you're going, and now you're going out seven days a week, and you said days, so it's not just evenings. It's uh, you're talking to women in broad daylight. Yeah, sometimes daytime, sometimes nighttime, just whatever I can kind of get into my schedule, you know. And what happened? What, what were the results? Oh, just in the beginning, it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Girls would kind of they were just really disinterested. They would, they would kind of look away. They would say no thanks. They would say I have a boyfriend. They would say we're lesbians when there was two of them, you know. So. Once in a they while, fed you lines. Them, yeah, they just fed me lines. Once in a while, one of them would be kind of nice to me and talk to me for like 30 seconds. Like 30 seconds was like, oh, yes, she talked to me for 30 seconds. <laughs> I'm doing it on the subway sometimes. Uh-huh. So I'd be doing this, it'd be a bunch of other people on the subway kind of looking at me <laughs> while I'm doing it. So I, you know, whatever. If you want to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. That's what they say, right? So I eventually found one that worked 
I, fa- I found like something I could say to girls that would make them talk to me for a couple minutes. By the way, are, when you say you got to break some eggs, are, now you're definitely uncomfortable. Is it, how's it for the girls? Are, are they feeling uncomfortable or are they just like, who is this guy? Or? Nah, the girls aren't that uncomfortable. Girls get hit on a lot. So I guess they're just used to it. You know, men have this thing like, oh my God, hitting on girls is like the end of the world. And they are, men are like really dramatic about this topic, but women, it's just like a, a normal part of their day. So I never really had a lot of like shocked women who were like, can't believe the guy is talking to me. You know, I, I never had anything like that. Okay. I found the first thing that actually worked. I was oh, yeah, talking to my brother about it. My brother was like a little more, um, I guess, social than me. He used to go to raves and he had like, you know, these rave dance moves and stuff. And he's very experimental. Um, and he would hang out with like, I don't know, these kind of like far out hippie people. And so my brother being very open-minded, I, was saying, how's it coming? You know, your little project. And I said, I can't, I don't know. They just won't talk to me much. And he said, why don't you say something like really off the wall? Why don't you ask them if they know uh, someplace nearby where you can get cotton candy? I love this because for people who have gone through Brad's program, the cotton candy opener, (laughs) the origins. Yeah. Right. So I'd walk up to girls. I was like, all right, I'll try it tomorrow when I'm out there. So I go out the next day and say, hey, you know any place around here where I can get cotton candy? And the girls, some of them looked like pretty intrigued with this. And I didn't know why at the time, but it turns out it was because they weren't totally sure if I was serious or, or maybe it was a stupid question or maybe they thought it was going to be fun or they thought I was asking for drugs or, you know, they just sort of didn't know what to make of it. And this was very helpful to me because usually they just knew I was hitting on them and they'd feed me their auto you know, rejection line, like girls know how to reject a guy. They say, I have a boyfriend or they say we're lesbians and they have these five or six lines that they say. So when I asked for, you know, if they know where to get some cotton candy, there was no auto rejection line that a woman could use on that. It didn't go to any of the usual spots in the mind of like, they had to think. Yeah. They had to think a little and it gave me a little opening to like talk to them and try to flirt with them a little. And that particular day, I would meet, I got too excited and I would start, I would start showing interest in the girls. I would be like, Hey, you want to go out? Hey, can I take you out to dinner? Hey. You know? <laughs> so then they'd be like, Nope, see ya. <laughs> but uh, when I came home, I was like, okay, the thing that worked was that they didn't really understand. They were a little confused by this. So maybe if I confuse them more, that'll work even better. You know? So I just tried more things that were a little off the wall. And I started to think of the craziest, weirdest things that had happened to me in my life and really focus on those as my subject matter and really avoid all the things that girls hear all the time. I I got rid of, hey, you're really pretty. I got rid of, can I take you out to dinner? I got rid of anything that shows interest, anything that sounds like I'm hitting on the girl. I just got rid of all that stuff. And that's when my results started to really, really improve. That was the first and probably biggest turning point. So your brother's kind of casual, try this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. Combined with, I guess, that fell on fertile ground because you had a lot of experience. You had a baseline. You weren't just getting random results or or you had something to compare it against. And you had the, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing this. Right, right. I had a lot of experience at that point. I mean, there probably been over, I don't know, over a hundred women, maybe 200 who had rejected me by that point. What a lovely experience. (laughs) It wasn't that bad. I, I'm all right. I live. Tell the tale, you know? 
would you have said that at the time? Because it feels like I've been rejected a lot of times. And, you know, it's... It's not the greatest feeling, but I didn't expect good feelings. You know, I didn't expect somebody to be nice to me. The rejections were fairly soft for the most part. Like nobody, the girls didn't try to humiliate me or embarrass me. They tried to kind of keep it quiet and give me a little brush off. I mean, I thought it was kind of like not bad. Like it was better than could be expected, you know? Like most people think a girl's going to point and laugh, you know? So that didn't happen. Most people think their boyfriend's going to come out of nowhere and kick your ass. Well, that didn't happen. So just, you know, kind of a calm brush off. I don't know. It doesn't feel great, but I didn't expect it to feel great. I expected oh, I had to, worse. I had this thing where it was all defensive, but at the time, see, if a woman wasn't that attracted, if I wasn't that attracted to her, then I would think, well, she's not attractive enough, so I won't approach her. And if she was more, if she was attractive enough, I would be, I would feel like, oh, she's so attractive. I, I don't want to mess things up. <laughs> right, and right. So I'd have to work up the nerve. And like, by the time I walked up to a woman in the few approaches that I would do, because usually I felt like, you had to meet someone through someone. I didn't know you could walk up to someone that you didn't know and introduce yourself. And, I didn't know that either. And whenever I heard, like the only times I've ever heard women talking to each other about guys hitting on them, they're always like, yeah, he tried to do this. And I was like, no way. I've never heard someone say, he came up and said this. And I was like, yes. They're always like, I always thought women didn't like to be approached. Yeah, and, I used to think that too. And so for me to approach a woman or a girl, I would have to, I would have to convince myself that, we would like, we were like going to get married. Right. Right. And only that, that like, I'd have to convince myself there was such a positive outcome possible that it was worth it. But then it was so scary that, you know, I I felt like I was rejected by someone that was like very deeply important to me. Mm, Yeah. Meanwhile, she had no idea what was going on in my head. Right. Right. To girls, like I said, it's no big deal. Yeah. They don't overthink it like men do. Okay, so you're you're getting these results and uh, against a baseline yeah. and solid foundation of of practice up until that point. Right. Then I got to the point where I was just like starting to ask a lot of girls for their phone number, and I would get a few, you know, maybe like one out of thirty. So I was like pretty excited for that, you know, mm-hmm. because I thought mistakenly that. <clears throat> Every girl who gives you her phone number really wants to go on a date and probably is going to have sex with you. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's not true, I found out, because most of the ones I called, they never called back. You know, they just kind of dodged me for a while. I think, I think texting wasn't that popular at the time. But I, I remember when, when texting, this was right when texting started to get more popular. I would start texting them as well. and you know, they would just not write back at all. And so this was another big lesson that a lot of girls, you know, a phone number doesn't really mean that much. So, you know, then I had to, I had to get very uh, kind of business-like about the whole thing. I had to be, uh, be going out there and be like, all right, I know how to get a girl's phone number now. I'm going to get a bunch of them and then I'm going to call them all and text them or whatever. And whatever ones don't write back, I'm just going to cut the cord and not really put effort into them anymore. And and I'm just going to kind of churn and burn it. Like maybe I, I can get like, you know, I started getting good at getting girls phone numbers and I could get one like every day, you know? And then I got to the point where I can get like maybe two every day. So then I was just kind of a numbers game. Like, all right, I got two phone numbers today and I've got six others that I'm working right now. So I got eight numbers and I'm just kind of 
you know, working the phones, working the phones. And, you know, by, I think at that time I became a little more cold and calculated about the whole thing. Obviously I wasn't taking any of it personal. It was all just a number to me. If I didn't get a date with this girl, I'd try again tomorrow. So I started to be like, whatever, some will go out of me, some of them won't. And that's when I started to get a lot of dates. When I really just stopped caring, you know, I was like, whatever, I'm going to get 10 phone numbers. One of them is probably going to go out with me. I'll just keep going until I find that. Got all the time in the world. You know, I don't really care how long it takes. So I became really detached about it. And that's when my results got good. I started to get some dates and I'm not too bad on a date. It was really meeting girls. That was a problem for me. Closing the deal was like not too difficult for me. I was okay on a date. So the hard part was kind of taken care of at that point. But you sound, as we're speaking now, you're, you're affable, you're, you're friendly. That was all there before? It was just... Yeah. Uh, you know, somewhat, but not really. I mean, I didn't project my personality very well. And I was too nice guy and submissive for women to be attracted to. But, you know, I had, I mean, I had social anxiety in high school. I, it was starting to go away in college. It came back a little when I moved to New York. But by the time I had hit on like three or 400 girls, my social anxiety was greatly reduced. And I was getting a lot of positive reinforcement for saying the craziest stuff that I could think of. So do that all day for a couple months. And, you know, you're going to have some zingers in there. And I just kind of held on to the zingers. And I became like a pretty outrageous kind of guy at that point. And that transition happened over probably like, I don't know, six or 12 months. I went from being, you know, this socially anxious, withdrawn person to like this kind of outrageous, say whatever person. And it, it, it worked pretty well, you know? Yeah, it was I always in me. You know, I, I had some of these thoughts, but I, I really had to develop a method for getting them out there. Now, I want to, all right, I want to put some context here of my first experience coaching with you. Because, all right, so I tried out to be a coach with you after having done your program. Yes. And that meant being out in LA and there was a whole bunch of trials I had to do. And then I got in and that's worth talking about in a second. But what happened was I got in and you at the time had what was the the mansion. So guys could live 24 seven in a community near Hollywood. And so that it was easy for them to go out and they could talk to each other and so forth. And then you and Jake, you're the right-hand man, I guess he was like, you're I mean, he also has a, an amazing origin story and seeing him out in the field is like amazing. And yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, he's the first person before him. I could see guys doing stuff that I'd never done before, but he was the first that I saw do things I couldn't understand before. <laughs> like I would just see him do things. I was like, what just happened? Yeah. The magic before? of Jake. And anyway, so so we, you, the three of us, the two of you and I met outside the mansions and we're about to go in and you say, okay, Josh, we're going to start preparing, uh, or we're going to, we're going to prepare for what we're going to, how we're going to work with these guys. Cause I think it was the meetings were once a week. Cause I was in New York, you're in LA. I didn't really know the details of what was going on there. And then you started saying the names of each guy who was there, what their issues were, what you were working on with them and all these ins and outs. And now I have an, I have several Ivy League degrees. I've done, I went, I went to Central High School in Philadelphia, which is like Stuyvesant there, which is like, you know, it's like the big magnet school in the city. It's a very, I loved, it's like one of my best educational experiences. And I've done educational 
consulting, which brought me to like Deerfield Academy, which is one of these Andover type places, Exeter type places. I've spoken at Harvard, Princeton. And of all the educational experiences I've had, you and Jake showed the most empathy and compassion and intimacy and like one-on-one personal caring for students that I've ever seen. And it was remarkable. And when I contrast that with what a lot of people in the world associate with when men try to learn how to meet women and, and create relationships with them, the difference between what the outside world sees and what I experienced there, given the context of all of the educational context I've seen, I, I was just blown away. It took my concept of coaching. I'd wanted to coach because I knew that coaching would establish, would, would mean that I only by reaching a certain level of my own skills could I then impart those skills onto others. What I'm getting at is that your teaching style and method is not just like, here's a boot camp, learn some stuff, but it engages with people. And it's also, it seems based in some really solid educational theory and practice that must have, I, I imagine, came from before any of this stuff began, not just for you how to teach yourself, but how to teach others. Because the, the program that I took had some really solid stuff in it, not just the material, but the structure of you know, learn important things, learn things in a certain order. Don't, don't let them get ahead of themselves because if you learn some later stuff that everyone wants to learn before you've learned some of the basics, you can confuse yourself and, and lots of other pedagogy that I found really strong. So did you have a solid educational background of how to teach and how to learn experientially and things like that? And what is, how did teaching come into this? Um, yeah, I did have quite a lot of background. I have a degree in psychology and philosophy. I also spent a number of years working as a social worker for at-risk urban teens in Queens, New York. I was a guitar teacher for a little while, which really forces you to uh, dissect little tiny nuances of how people are moving their fingers and how their brain's working. And I also was a basketball coach uh, during the summers. Um, so that was pretty helpful as well. I think the, the strongest experience that I had uh, with coaching and teaching was that I was a, a basketball player previously. And in high school, I was coached by some, I think some pretty, you know, pretty good coaches that were, they had division one, you know, college basketball experience. That's a pretty elite level. Um, and my college coach was even far beyond that um, because we won every championship. You know, we won our conference championship and things like that. And my old college coach actually went on to become an NBA coach and he's an NBA coach presently. Um, so this guy used, I don't even know, like some very advanced, like brainwashing type stuff to turn us into winners. I mean, um, and it was in what he said, but it was also in the experiences he designed for us. So I've, I've been coached by a lot of elite coaches myself, and I try to bring that to the table. Uh, but there's, there's some other reasons why this learning experience was, was different as well. First off, I take it more seriously than probably most of the Harvard professors and that you've experienced. And also the students that I coach take it more seriously than the average student at any college. The students that I have, they want to get a girlfriend or get laid. And that is a very powerful driver. That is a very powerful part of the male psyche. And, and their motivation, I think, is higher for that than for somebody who wants to get a degree so they can go get a job. I, I think, you know, a college student's motivation is typically, 
it's kind of a long game going to college. You're going to hang out for four years and then hopefully get a job. And it's like, yeah, I got a job. I could be like everyone else. It's not that exciting, you know? Um, whereas meeting women and getting sex and having a girlfriend, that's, that's like a, like a guttural feeling. It's like a primal urge. So in my coaching, I try to tap into that primal urge and turn it into motivation. And I don't think any college student is going to have motivation like a pickup student has, whether the pickup student is coaching with me or anybody else. Um, the other thing is I take it very seriously because I'm not some tenured professor. You know, I'm only good as I'm only as good as my last workshop. And if if I do a crummy job, that's it. You know, nobody's going to coach with me anymore. Everybody's going to know. So I have to be doing above and beyond the student's expectation every single second that I coach. So I consider this stuff almost like life and death. You, you know, um, most of the guys who, you know, shoot up their college or create a, some kind of a mass shooting, it's a lot of males and it's a lot of males who have been rejected by a lot of women and they have a lot of anger about that and, no, and you know, nobody who's given them a chance and they have mental illness so that's probably why no one gives them a chance. But to me, you never know when you're, you're coaching the next, you know, guy who's going to shoot up a college campus. And I feel like everybody wants love in this world and everybody needs love. And if I can take an action that's going to get this person into a relationship and make, make them not so lonely in anymore... I mean, my students generally weren't the angry type, but you, you just never know, right? So I, this is like a prevention of a lot of discontent that ferments in our society. Even the people who don't shoot up a college, the people who are just carrying around anger 24-7 because that girl rejected him for the prom 20 years ago, you know, taking that kind of guy and turning him around and making him positive, that has a ripple effect on everyone. Um, it's beneficial for women. It's beneficial for their families and their parents and uh, their coworkers and their friends. And so much positivity comes out of these men trying to meet women because then they start going to the gym and they start eating right and they all these other positive things. They start to get over all their old things that they used to be angry about. And, you know, I consider myself the conduit to that positive life transformation. So I take that very seriously. I would think probably more seriously than you know, a professor who's on tenure and he's got, you know, he's going to show up, but it's not like do or die for that professor. Yeah. His perishing would come from not publishing, which is really an, more abstract than the personal relationship with the students in his, his or her classroom. And yeah, it sounds like there's a, on the one hand, you could feel like you have a lot of responsibility and that could be a weight. But I feel like if I read you right, you see a lot of opportunity and it feels like it's like an oyster. Or how do you put it? Like the, I think you're looking at the upside and what you can bring to this guy's life, each one. Yeah, well, I don't want to do a bunch of little unimportant stuff. That's not what I do in life. I want to do really important things and powerful things, and that's what I consider this job to be. Just I want that pressure. You, you do want that pressure. Is that here, right? Yes, I want the pressure. Oh, man. So it, this is really exciting. Because <laughs> I think, does it bother you that the outside world so many people jumble it up with something different or misunderstand or think that like, this is misguided. It bothers um, me. You know, my thing is like, everybody's entitled to their opinion. You know, it's a free country. If you want to look at the pickup world and say, they're all, what's the word I'm looking for, for guys who hate women. 
misogynist uh, or misogynist. Yeah. If you want to look at the pickle world and say they're a bunch of misogynists, you have every right to say that you can tell people, you can write it on the internet, you can do whatever you want. It's I'm going to do, you know, what I do. It doesn't really matter to me, but Hey, you want to go around just saying stuff like that. You're welcome to it. Oh, cause yeah, it's funny. Cause from my perspective, I've always felt like I grew up and I didn't have, I didn't learn any of this. I didn't have, I had an older stepbrother, but he didn't, it was stepbrother. So the connection wasn't that strong and he wasn't, he didn't have Probably nobody taught him either. Yeah. No one taught him. And my father, my parents were divorced. So I never saw a man behaving, showing vulnerability and intimacy with a woman and behaving in a romantic way. And I felt it was something to hide. And I always had to do it. Like I felt like if someone saw me talking to a woman, I had to hide it or it was all really I don't know how to put it. I, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. It's men are shamed for having uh, sexual desires and relationship needs uh, and for wanting love and wanting women. Men are shamed for that. I agree. Yeah. And so I had all these relationships with women and no intimacy with any of them. And by intimacy, I don't just mean physical, also emotional intimacy and intellectual intimacy. It was just I would treat them asexually and I would present myself as asexual. Not, I don't mean like I'm an asexual person. I am sure there are people who identify right. that way, but I just mean, I would just take that out of the equation and that way we could all be friends. And which is great. I had lots of female friends and people knew me as a guy who had lots of female friends, but the relationships I had with them were not relationships that I wanted. Yeah. And frankly, a lot of people say like men are taught to treat women as others or to all, it, all these different things. And, and then they say, and they talk about learning attraction as an example of that. And for me, it was the exact opposite. It was, that's when I stopped putting them on a pedestal and thinking that they were somehow like special or always right or something like that. And started listening and paying attention to the, how they responded and what they said and what they, you know, not just my idea of who they were, but who actually was this individual right here, right in front of me. Who is she? What is she like? What is she not like? And yeah, that is a great feeling. And it's a very necessary part of this process to empty your cup and get rid of all your pre-existing ideas about women and start to adopt something that's more realistic. Um, I would tell some of my uh, pickup mansion guys in the super you know, advanced month 12 sessions that learning pickup and learning attraction is just an exercise in observing reality with more accuracy and getting rid of your pre-existing ideas and being more open-minded to what's really going on in front of you instead of, you know, using ideas that you created years ago or somebody put in your brain years ago to color those experiences. It's all about being really objective and really open. I'm glad you said you said that towards the end, because it seems like something someone might say early on, but as you said it, it made me think of the, the 30-30 program that I did with you. So that's the brand name of, of Brad's program that I did. And it was a, an amazing experience in many ways. One of them was that what you said is interesting. What you said just now about observing reality objectively, it's, that on its own is not actionable. And that's a big problem for a lot of people because they get told things like, just be yourself. And stuff that sounds great for the person saying it, but it's very difficult to make that practical. It's just a good way to end the conversation when you don't know the answer. You know what? There's a, a category of things like that. There's like, don't worry about it. Is yeah. They're usually saying, don't worry me about it. Yeah. 
I I really don't know. (laughs) There's another one. Oh yeah. Yeah. When people break up and they say, you know what? The best thing for you is to get over it. And I think what they're really saying is the best thing for me is for you to get over it. (laughs) Cause then you could start talking about other stuff that's more interesting than how bad you feel. And it, it's like, it may be, it may be effective advice, but it's often not, I don't think it's often very useful advice, but what I was getting at was that the way that you taught was to give people exercise, to give us exercises that if you did them, you'd learn these things. And instead of hitting us with theory about it, you would tell us to do things that we would develop the understanding that wouldn't actually have come from just telling us the answers. And now I'm, I guess that given the coaching and teaching and so forth and education that you had, that did you think really long and hard about how to put it together? Because no one else did a program like that, as far as I know. Like a, I did think really year. hard about it. And it was a lot of it was a response to a problem that was going on in that specific community. Now, remember, when I first started teaching, I wasn't part of any larger community. But as my classes became more popular, these guys all came in and they were from an online community. It's called the seduction community. And I wasn't familiar with, you know, the things that they study. So when I first heard them talking, you know, they knew a lot of stuff because they read all these books and stuff. And all I had was, you know, real world experience. I hadn't really read much. Um, And I had these other guys who taught me everything. And these guys knew like so much terminology and like psychology. And then I would go into the field with them and we would go hit on girls. And these guys couldn't do anything. They were like terrible. So the way the 3030 Club was laid out was to prevent people from overstudying. You know, we're, we're kind of taught in school to like spend a lot of time studying, reading books, and then you'll be able to parrot back all these theories and information. But that doesn't work for skills in the real world. You know, you ha- kind of have to learn it by doing. Uh, so I created the 3030 Club to take those guys who had overstudied and underapplied and I forced those guys to go apply stuff. And I want them to empty their cup on day one and go apply stuff and go do it and stop reading. You know, that was my golden rule in the 3030 Club. For every one hour you spend studying, you have to spend two hours applying it in the field, in real life. Like actually go talk to girls. So it was, you know, the seduction community was a large collection of men who read books and did nothing with the information. That's what it was. And so the 3030 Club was kind of meant to you know, it would teach newbies, of course, and it was a great curriculum to follow, but it's also to reform the do nothing study people. And that's not unique to the seduction community. That's pretty much all self-help, you know, self-help educational systems cater to people who read the book and do nothing with it. You know, same goes for, you know, Tony Robbins talks about it. He says, people, I think he says most people buy his book and don't even read page one, you know, so. <laughs> uh-huh. it's <been> on the <laughs> shelf. Yeah, yeah. So I was trying to, you know, I know people have that tendency because reading's kind of fun. You can be like, ooh, I read something. I'm smart now. I learned this. Hey, I can like go say this at a party and it'll make me look cool. But actually getting off your butt and going out and hitting on girls, maybe in the subway where everybody's listening to you like I did, that's hard. And people don't want to do that. So in the 3030 Club, I I, I almost have to like trick people into taking action, you know, and I'm fine with tricking people. Like I said, my college basketball coaches used to trick me all the time into improving and learning new things. So it's, it's fine, you know. But that's what it was a response to, the, the self-help uh, self effect 
when you read a book and do nothing with it? I'm thinking about many different things. One of them is that in the environment, there's, if I talk to almost anyone in, with any approach about the environment, almost always you'll get, I get responses that are like, um, if I act but no one else does and what I do doesn't matter, or you know, the government should do this, or the heads of corporations should do that, anything but actually them changing their behavior. And it's this philosophy, academic, just kind of like I was just ta- just earlier today, I was talking to someone about we were, we were talking about working together and creating some materials together. And I asked him, like, what do you think about when you think about the environment? Which is a question I ask almost everyone on this podcast. And he's like, Well, let me tell you about philosophy and ethics. And I was like, Where's he going to go with this? And he talks for like five minutes about philosophy and ethics, anything about the but. <laughs> and I go, well, that's kind of interesting. All this philosophy, how does that apply to the environment? And then he starts talking about like all this other stuff that's not the environment. And it took. He was more, according to him, he was more. Um, how do you describe himself? He described himself as himself as not emotional. And well, what does that have to do with it? Well, what is that? <laughs> yeah. That's part of it. And also everyone's emotional. It's like people I, <laughs> it's true. get that like calm is an emotion. Like people look at someone who's angry and they're like, that guy's really emotional, but they don't look at someone who's calm and be like, wow, that's really emotional. It's, it's, it's equally emotional. Yeah. It emerges from our emotions. So anyway, and then I get him onto the environment. So when he's talking about the environment, he's like, he's talking about its relative importance to him about all these other things in life of making a living and sort of stuff like that. I'm like, okay. I see that the importance isn't necessarily that high for you, but I'm not asking about the importance. I'm asking about what it means. Like, what do you think about when you think about the environment? And after a long time, he finally starts talking about how like the city recently planted a tree near where he lives and he's been tracking this thing's growth for a while, like going out of his way in detail, like following the stuff. And I'm like, this isn't not caring. This isn't not, this is like meaningful. I mean, it's not like how you take care of your own baby, but it's, going out of his way. And then when I really get him talking about it, he starts really opening up and sharing about how this stuff is really meaningful. And he starts, he starts talking about enjoyment and, and engagement and beauty and people get so defensive. And it's not that he wasn't emotional. The stuff was there. And, and when I asked him if he wanted to take on a challenge, he was like, oh, I don't know what to do. I, you know, I got all these constraints in my life and he starts enumerating all these different constraints and so forth. And then eventually it comes out that he's actually been doing something for the past six months. And he's been thinking about adding to it because it's been going so well. I'm like, it's been there this whole time. Like I asked him, he knew where I was going with this because I told him the type of questions that I ask. And it took like 20 minutes of talking to get to something that was really like right below the surface. And I don't know, this is all just to get about like, he's very book heavy. This guy's clearly into philosophy. And he's just rather talk about philosophy than to actually do anything. But once we start talking about doing stuff, he's like, you know, I've been meaning to do this for a while. I was like, 10 minutes ago, I asked you if you had anything in mind and you were like, I can't think of anything. Yeah, I can, I can feel your pain, Josh, because you are trying to communicate with people about a topic that they are uniquely defensive about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't think there's any... I think you'd have a better chance of getting people to tell you, you know, you could say to someone like, uh, so how often do you f*** your wife? (laughs) And you'd probably get a more direct answer and less shock and disappointment than what do you think of the environment, you know? Well, I've been working on it for, I mean, I've had several hundred conversations now. And here's what I can tell you. I operate with the belief 
that everybody has something about the environment that is meaningful to them. And even if they're the head of some fossil fuel burning company, and they think the most important thing in the world is to burn fossil fuels as maximally as we can. And, <laughs> you know, even someone like that, they don't want mercury in their fish. They don't want their kid to have asthma pointlessly. And so I take it as a given that no matter how protective they are, and they're protective. I think there's, I think there's reasons I fully agree with that people should, that people would be protective. Like people, there's all this doom and gloom all over the place and all this guilt and blame. And a lot of people feel like there's a big global thing that what can I do? What I would do won't matter. And so doom, gloom, guilt, blame, feeling worthless, that doesn't help you sleep at night. So you got to tell yourself stories to help yourself sleep at night. And if someone challenges that, then yeah, of course you're going to be defensive. But what I can take for granted is that on the other side of that defensiveness is something that people are like, you know, I have been meaning to do X or Y or Z or whatever. Everyone's got something. So that I, that I take for granted. Like, you don't know that a girl that you talk to is going to be attracted to you in particular, but I do know that everyone wants to breathe clean air. Everyone wants clean water. So I have that going for me. It's just, I have the experience. I think, well, I think compared to before, I've developed a lot of, I think it's pretty rare that he didn't come up with anything that I hadn't heard before. And it's been a while since I've heard something that I haven't heard before of like, Hey, Josh, where do you get your toilet paper? <laughs> People really uh, like got you, environmental guy. Got gotcha. you. Yeah, <laughs> but now I, have, I've, I, I like my answer to that one. Although oh, I haven't heard this yet. Well, there's a couple. I mean, one of them is that it's like natural. If you meet Derek Jeter, you want to ask him, "All right, what do you do in the bottom of the ninth if it's two outs <laughs> in World Series?" You know, you want to know the the you want you want the glory stuff. You don't want to ask the boring stuff. Even yeah. though, like when I was learning salsa dancing, I would ask the teacher, "Like, how to do the fancy spin moves?" And the answer was always, it's in the feet and the rhythm. Listen to the feet, listen to the rhythm and, and get your feet moving to the rhythm. And I was like, you told us on the first day. I'm on the advanced stuff. I've been doing this for a while. Joe, and- Joe Rogan asks all the boring details. He's like, what do you eat? How do you stand? What time do you go to bed? <laughs> it's all in the fundamentals. Yeah. You st- the, and there's one of my favorite videos online, LeBron James. It's one hour of him practicing with a trainer. And yeah. it's boring. I doubt anyone besides me, has watched the whole thing all the way through. But he does some crazy moves on the floor and that's what he practices. And so one of my answers is, you know, stick with the basics. The other is that, especially at NYU, I go to a lot, of, but it's, there's like a lot of events that I go to where there's, it's catered and there's a lot of, um, you know, or uh, crudite, there's drinks and there's, and there's vegetables and cheese and stuff like that. And that means there's piles of napkins. And that means people will pick up like five napkins, use one, leave four, and then someone's going to pick up the four that were never used in any way whatsoever and throw them away. So a little while ago, I started picking those things up, not used ones, ones that no one used in any way. And they get thrown away and I see people throwing them away. And so I started bringing them home because I was like, all right, no one's using them. I don't want them to throw away because you know I'm doing environmental stuff. And then eventually I realized I was replacing my napkins with them. And then I was realized, if you can wipe your face with them, I can wipe my butt with them. <laughs> and that's my answer. If you Genius. can wipe your face, I can wipe my butt. And it's been a long time. I, I buy toilet paper because other people come over and they use it. And I, I haven't told people like, here's some napkins that I picked up from like uh, uh, some cocktail party. Yeah, they might not be ready for that. Yeah. So I have to keep replacing toilet paper for others because I live in society and so forth. But that's my answer for that. It's my Josh, answer. Josh, you live a compromised life. Yeah. Buy toilet paper for other people. I'm very disappointed to hear this. 
I will not talk to you about the environment now. Back to the drawing board for me. <laughs> so would you, have I told you my origin story? I forget how much of it, like with the business school and the class play and stuff like that. No, not really. You just kind of showed up one day. Like I saw that thing in your email and you had mentioned it once or twice that you were like not eating packaged food. But when you showed up, showed up in LA four months ago or whatever, you had gone all the way. And I was like, whoa, what happened? So I have oh, not that's the full, Okay, so that's the environmental stuff. I was also talking about the, the girl stuff. So oh, with, yeah. okay. But I, I, I'm going to say one sentence on the, um, on the environmental stuff was that when I first started avoiding packaged food, I had no idea that it would lead to, you know, at the time I would, I'd throw out my garbage once a week or so, roughly like once a week, twice a week, once every other week, something like that. And I had no expectation that I would take the last time that I threw it out my garbage, it took me 16 months to fill up a, a modest size, a little canvas tote bag. Looking back, however, it's, I see it as completely inevitable because once I started and found more delicious, saving money, more friends, more community, connecting with the farm and so forth, then if each step brought me more joy, I can, of course, I'm going to take more steps. And it didn't occur to me that other people from the outside would one day see 16 months as a very, very long time to take to fill up a garbage bag or a tote bag. You know, it's like when you, when you see your hair every day, you don't think that it's getting that long. And then someone sees you that hasn't seen you for a while and they're like, oh, really long. And so for me, 16 months was just, it wasn't really that long. But did, did you hear the girls' origin stuff? Um, I don't think I did. So this is something, now I'm going to preface this. And you've heard me say this to some degree that, so I started coaching with you and I'd done a little bit of leadership coaching separate from that. And now I do executive and leadership coaching. And I tell them my clients after I've worked with them for a bit, because when I coach like C-suite executives of publicly traded companies and entrepreneurs and people like that, people who are like very successful people. And it always starts off with some business need, like they, got a, they just got promoted and it's the first time they have a leadership role and like, what's going on here? There's all these people skills. I don't get it. Or they want to start a new company or their people are getting promoted around them and they don't like it or they have an issue with their CEO. And invariably, it's almost a like clockwork around month two that they come back and they say, you know, this stuff we've been working on with the company, I started talking to like my wife or my husband or my kid noticed it. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then around then is when I say, you know, by the way, I also coach dating for a long time. And it gets really much more, a much more intimate relationship between the coach and the client. And that's available to us if you want. And they always say, yes, that's very interesting to me. And whether they're male, female, whatever their field is, because they sense that leadership is not just a business thing. I mean, obviously leadership is in, it's in business, but it's also in politics and it's in sports and lots of different areas. It's in family. And it's in all relationships. And so they really like that I can offer these skills and experiences and, and ways of learning at a much deeper, more personal, more intimate level. And it allows them to be more vulnerable, allows me to be more vulnerable. And the learning increases from there. And they start applying in lots of different areas. And as, that turns, as it turns out, that applies to the areas where they originally came from me, even though they, didn't, they wouldn't have expected that. And, but what I have not done is talk about this stuff publicly partly because I get really scared that there's, you know, there's some people out there that when they hear about a man learning how to meet women, as far as I can tell, the word misogynist pops into their head and it's impossible to take it away. And in our world, a word like, like an accusation like that sticks in a way that whether 
accurate or not, or fair or not, or whatever, it just sticks in a way. And I was always scared of that. And I've been, I want to make sure that I can serve my clients effectively. And that with the leadership in the environment podcast, that my goal is it's all about reducing our impact on the environment that's messing it up. And two things. One, I want that measurable. And I want on the leadership side, people to enjoy this process. And I didn't want anything to get in the way of that. On the other hand, a big piece of what I talk about is integrity and bring yourself fully there. And there's a big, this, this world that we're talking about, this experience is a very important experience for me. And either if I didn't share it, then I would not be sharing a big part of my personal growth and development. If I did share it, I had that risk. And I decided at some point I had to say, look, let the chips fall with me. What I did was, I think, one of the more valuable things that a lot of, for a lot of people to do, male, female, different ways for different people. And then also I sat down with my mom at one point and she had for years been saying, Josh, you've really been able, you've really blossomed. And, you know, not just stuff a mother would say, because she's not just saying like, Josh, I love you as a son. She's also comparing me to before. And she's saying you, you speak more openly and you're more approachable and you're less, um, I was very defensive and lots of difficulties. And I would always say, well, that's because I studied leadership in business school. And that was a small piece of it because it was around the same time that this stuff started kicking in. And this is all preface or context for why it took me so long to feel comfortable sharing this stuff. Now, I didn't hide it either. I, never, I don't think I ever lied and said I didn't do something that I did do. And anyone who put the pieces together of hearing that I have podcast guests, including uh, Jordan Harbinger, who, if you know, he doesn't hide either. He, he, before the Jordan Harbinger show, there was the Art of Charm. And before the Art of Charm, there was him learning these things. And he's got an origin story kind of like yours. And then I interviewed Chase Amante from Girls Chase. And he and I have been very good friends for a long, long time. And then I talk about being in North Korea for a couple of weeks on two different trips uh, with Jordan and also with Neil Strauss. And Neil Strauss, who wrote the book, The Game. And I think it wouldn't be too hard to put together, oh, Josh must be into, just must, Josh must have a relationship with this world. So I hope I'm not boring you, Brad, with this. Oh, no, it's all right. Okay. Oh, that's funny. It, oh, no, it's all right. I was like, oh, no, it's not a problem that you're boring me. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I can see the importance of, uh, you know, your listeners might want to hear this. And so, so for me, it also began in my 30s that I was, I mean, I grew up and I had girlfriends and actually, I had several girlfriends in one in high school and one in college that were really like guys would say like, wow, she's like the most attractive girl in school, stuff like that. And that worked really well for me. I mean, I, I had great relationships with them, although the breakups were devastating. I mean, because I could only be in a relationship where I, I would only put the effort in if I thought this is going to be it forever. And I was like, you know, listening to like Beatles songs and being like, all you need is love. Is that right? I think so. Love is all you need. And, and like just having this overly romanticized view of these things that made me like a real, I don't know, I think I was pretty sappy in relationships and just doing whatever it took to make the relationship work. And when things were bad, I would like guilt them into like staying with me. And that wasn't working very well. So for total other reasons, my business, I mean, I started my first business and that went well for a while, but then didn't go well. And I realized I wanted to keep starting businesses. So I went to business school and totally unexpectedly to me, there were classes in business school and leadership that were teaching about social and emotional skills and emotional EQ as opposed to IQ. And in school, I was learning to pay attention to my emotions, which I never had before. Because in physics, 
not really something people pay attention to when you're measuring the mass of an electron. And so I was kind of thinking, this is interesting. And I started paying attention to my emotions somewhat. And I started noticing like anxiety. I noticed that a lot of things, this, I don't remember what led me to this pattern, but I noticed that a lot of the more, the things that I liked in my life tend to enter my life as big anxieties. So like sports, when I first started playing sports, I didn't want to get the pass because if I dropped it, it would be, you know, I'd look bad. So I'd purposefully self-sabotage. I'd make bad cuts so that I wouldn't get the, the, get the pass in competition. And I would, and then like in class, academics, I, in physics, you, you're always scared of asking questions that others might be like, you didn't know that. And so I wouldn't raise my hand. And then that set up this pattern where if I didn't know something, I wouldn't ask. I would want to learn enough about it even to ask the teacher during office hours. So I'd learn it, learn it, learn it. And then I'd learn it not as well as I could, but as much as I, as much as I could, but not all the way. And then I'd say, you know, what? I know it well enough now. I don't have to ask the teacher. So I'd never get the help that I could, even though it was all there for me. And then came the class play. And I, I had not done any drama in school. I had never done any class play, not since third grade. And in business school, Follies was like really fun. It's this big end of the year party. and for some reason, for various reasons, I decided to try out to get into the class play because a friend of mine was doing it. And I wrote a sketch that I, in order for the sketch to be performed, you had to be in it. And I, I thought I could just make the sketch and give it to them and not be in. And they said, well, if you want the sketch to be performed, you got to be in at least one sketch. So I had my little plan. I was going to take on a role and then drop out like the day before and someone else would do it. Like total horrible idea. But we practiced and practiced and practiced and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And eventually I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. So there I am, the night of follies, of the class play. I'm on the wings waiting for my line to come up. And in the audience are 500 people, many of whom have become very good friends of mine. And later that night, there's going to be another 500 people for the second showing. And I'm on the verge of throwing up out of my nerves. And there's nothing I can do at the stage to get out of this. And I've gotten out of a lot of things in the past, but they're saying their lines and it's approaching the line where I'm supposed to come in. And the line, it comes and I go, I just go up the stairs. And by the way, I've not gotten my lines right once in rehearsal. Everyone on stage has at some point filled in for me in some way, because I had this idea that if you want to be spontaneous on stage, you have to like be spontaneous. And I didn't know until later that, you know, spontaneity comes through rehearsal and rehearsal, rehearsal. So, Oh yeah. And I played a professor. I was, I get up and I go over to, and sit on a chair with a table and in front of the table or on the table is a name card. And I actually wrote my line on the back of that name card before going up on stage, you know, before when you're setting things up as if like someone isn't good, as if the audience is not going to notice, like Josh is reading his line off the back of the name card. Mm-hmm. So I go up and the one thing going, the one big thing going for me is that everyone's standards are very low. This is not Broadway. This is like, class play and a lot of people in the audience are drunk at this stage because it's like just past finals period. And I got my lines, you know, I didn't perform like a thespian, but I got them okay. And the laughs came in just where they were supposed to. And I started like floating. I felt like I was like walking on air. And it's possible that the hours after those performances are the most euphoric hours of my life of just, it was just, I could not believe how good I felt because I wrote these sketches. I delivered the lines and the laughter was exactly the laughter I was thinking of. And that really reinforced this idea of the most anxiety leading to the best things in my life. And I was like, this is a pattern. I want to find the greatest anxieties in my life. 
because I want to work on them and turn them into these awesome things. So I was like looking for what it, what it could be. And at the time I was thinking, I was searching for what I could do. And a friend of mine was a really beautiful singer. I mean, her voice was just phenomenal. The first note she would sing and like the whole room silences to listen. And I asked her, and I, I was always scared. Oh, the Follies cast party was karaoke. And I got really, really drunk, but I had a really good time. But I didn't want to keep getting drunk like that because the hangover wasn't worth it. And so I asked her, how do I learn to sing? And she said, well, you just keep singing. Just practice singing. Sing all you can, record it sometimes. And so for a little while, I'd be like singing in my apartment and lying in bed, going to sleep, I'd sing. And I thought, because I thought this is what I'm going to work on. Singing is something that makes people really popular and so forth. And in the middle of this, by some chance, a friend of mine from business school said, have you read the book, The Game? I was like, I think I'd heard of it. I'm not sure. And he gave me a copy of it. He gave me his copy. And I read it. And it's Neil's story. It's not like how to pick up girls. To me, it's a story of it's like the hero's journey. And I read it and I thought, this guy at the beginning is like I am. And the guy at the end is not, I don't want to be just like that, but I, I would like that level of a transformation. And I realized that approaching women, that's the greatest anxiety in my life right now. And that's something I really want to work on. And I decided I'm going to work on this. I'm going to get, I'm going to practice. If he could do it, I could do it. That was like the big belief driving me. So at the beginning, I decided I got to figure this out all on my own. And so I'd practice on my own. Just I'd read a lot of books and try what I could. And then eventually I'd met some people who coached and I'd practiced enough that I could help them coach, help them do their three-day bootcamp things. But I still wasn't really learning. And then you came into town one time and you said, you were asking, there, there was, I guess, a, a conference, a, a one-day or two-day thing with different coaches of different styles talking about what they did. And I had seen Hyper transform tremendously. Who saw Hyper as the, you know, a lot of guys in this world don't use their real names. And, and then you were talking about, oh, you were talking about doing this and it was really fun. The way you talk about it sounded really fun. And that wasn't something, it was work for me. And when, when you talked about it being, when you presented it in a fun way, I thought, I want to do it like that. And so when you asked, who out there wants to, to the audience? Who out there wants to, I forget what. I was like, a lot of people here know me as someone who's pretty good at this stuff because I've been doing it for years by that point. I raised my hand. I thought a lot of people raised their hand. Not a lot, some did. And then you caught, Sorry, I, get it. I think this is like, like a flash evaluations. I would, I would talk to someone for like three minutes and just give my initial read on, you know, some, some things that they could improve in their social skills. I used to do that at conferences and whatnot occasionally. Yeah. And when you did that, I thought, I want to try your way of doing things. And also you said it was a year and it's mainly you working on your own. And I thought a year made more sense to me than a weekend real quick turnaround. And I knew that I had in me to stick with it for a year. Because by this point, I had a PhD and MBA and all this, like, obviously I could put the time in. And yeah, so that led me to really feel, and I wanted to make sure there were no gaps. So you or Drew, I think Drew, uh, your assistant said, you know, you can skip some of the stuff you already know. And I was like, no, I don't want to skip anything. I want to make sure I get all the, I don't want any cracks in the foundation. And a year later, I was like, I had learned a lot. Like I got things where, I mean, my relationships with women, I think it's safe to say that virtually every relationship I had with women after that was better than almost any relationship with women I had before that. And in terms of intimacy and vulnerability and openness and friendliness and doing stuff together and all the stuff that I think anyone would say, that's what, that's what people want in a relationship. 
And I also decided I, it was important to me some sort of, it wasn't status, although I do like status, but affirmation that I'd reached a certain level. And so I wanted to become a coach. And I think that brings us full circle to when I went out to California to try out to be a coach and brought me to you and Jake outside the, the mansion that time. But this is like the story that I went through. I told my mom about it and she was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> no big deal. A lot more to it. But a lot of my teaching style comes from your teaching style. And I mean, I've done a lot of research into teaching style. So there's lots of, lots of stuff in there. But I think your teaching style, I think of it as coming from, I identify it most with method acting and how actors learn, but how singers learn, how athletes learn. And it doesn't surprise me that a lot of what you did, did came from a basketball coach and from, a, and from you coaching guitar, teaching guitar. There's also a thing, uh, serial learning and parallel learning, which is explained in the 3030 Club. But this came from a, a student of mine who was a college professor in Chicago. And as I was um, kind of laying out the 3030 Club, I was put, I think it was, I don't know if it was out or I was building it still. He told me about this. Serial learning is a better way to learn. It's more, it's more in-depth and it works faster as opposed to parallel learning. So parallel learning is when you're just immersed into a subject and you just kind of pick stuff up as you go. Serial learning is when it's structured and you learn the easy stuff. And then that serves as a foundation for the intermediate stuff. And then that serves as a foundation for the advanced stuff. So I'm a big believer in serial learning. And that's why I did 12 months of curriculum for the 3030 Club where you know, you can't study month four and really learn that much from it unless you've done a really good job on months one, one, two, and three. I mean, you'll learn some things, but to have that, that true wisdom and experiential learning where it's deep learning, where you understand why and you have the intuition that comes along with true knowledge and not just memor- memorizing facts, uh, you have actionable knowledge. Um, that comes as a building process from serial learning, I think. There's this funny disconnect between, and not disconnect, but there's this funny um, difference in the theory and practice of education that goes into your teaching. Not that, I I don't think you're unique in this, but certainly effective in it, is really way out there, really well-developed and on a really solid foundation that isn't necessarily what would come out in the marketing. Because I think the marketing, in general, if you want to sell and market, it's usually about the other person's, whatever the problem is in their life that you can help resolve. So it doesn't really help you necessarily to market it by saying, there's all this background in education and how things work, and but it's all there. Yeah, you can't really sell it that way. It's true. I, I had tried, and people aren't that interested. They're just, what's in it for me? You know, how fast can I learn? How quick can you get me laid? You know, people want instant results, and it's hard to talk them out of that. You know, so to some degree, I have to cater to that in a way. And it's funny that even though that's the input to your community, the guys that I've met in this world have been the most emotionally available and open and the most available, allowing themselves to, to make mistakes and to be corrected and, and share of themselves. And on a personal level, I've cried for women more after going through this experience than I did before because I was so protected before and I wouldn't open up. And now I've had my heart broken more times. And I, I'm saying this kind of casually, it hurts like hell at the time. And it's really the community that you have created, both especially with the people that I meet one-on-one personally, but also just the, the online community, 
people are really, men are really open and sharing. And you watch that happen a lot, I guess. Do you consciously yeah, try to make it that way? We have to do it that way because to be guarded is going to get you less results. And you're not trying to impress anyone. You know, we're all going to do better if we're all just let our guard down. And so everybody knows that. Um, there's nothing to gain by being guarded and everything to gain by letting your guard down. So it's it's part of our emphasis on a results-based system. Results are what matters, you know, not impressing the next guy over in the workshop and not impressing the coach and not even like having fun and having a good time is very important in my system, but results are even more important than that. It's all about results. Results kind of rule everything else and supersede everything else. So that's why we have to be open and willing to show our emotions uh, because it's going to get us to the goal. I got to keep paying attention to this. I got to keep learning and learning from this because with the environment, there's so many people out there and they're focused on awareness or being conscious of stuff. I'm like, it's front page news every day or at least weekly. And it has been for years. You're, you're plenty aware of it. And <laughs> it's the results. And I always focus on the two results of the environmental side of measurable results and you know, material measurable results. And then on the leadership side, it's got to be fun. Well, it can be fun and rewarding, something meaningful and purposeful. And maybe I got some of that from you because if the results aren't there, awareness, consciousness, spreading facts, the environment doesn't react to those things. No, it does not. Some of that stuff makes people more resistant to change too, unfortunately. Can you, can you expand? You know, the way the media presents this information is intended to be alarming and it's supposed to make you click and read more and it's create more clicks, create more eyeballs. That way you can give you more ads and they're not trying to create anything actionable because they want you to stay in front of your computer screen. They don't want you to go out and do anything. So it's the clickbaitization of our media that makes this stuff so alarming. You know, all the screaming headlines and, oh, 20 years till we're all, you know, the permafrost melts and we're all, we're all dead. But the effect that has on people is that it does make them kind of give up and become apathetic and say, well, what can I do? The, the newspaper says it's pretty much game over for hu the human race. And so there's not a lot of in-depth explanation or, or actionable information um, it's just sensationalized information. And that's not really going to help anyone. I uh, see. So yeah. And it's like, that guy's scaring me. I don't want to talk to him anymore. Yeah. And now yeah. you just like undermine your ability to influence people. What, what if this guy, Josh, read the same stuff I read? He's going to remind me of that stuff. Let's, yeah. let's go stand further away from him and his, his wooden bowl and his, his one fork <laughs> that he owns. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting? that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Oh, so now I want to switch to, uh, so I stayed with you out in California, if you don't mind my sharing. Yeah, and yeah. This last time, I mean, I, obviously I stayed with you or stayed with the mansion stuff, but this last time I was out in California a few months ago, and you talked about how 
I changed a lot. Actually, what is it from your perspective? How I stay, what it was like my staying there? Well, I, I don't mean that your personality really changed a lot. I mean that your focus on the environment is kind of all encompassing. Whereas, I don't know, I don't remember you being, I mean, when I first met you, you weren't that passionate about it, or at least you wouldn't, weren't mentioning it. And then I remember you saying a couple things about it. And then this last time, it's kind of like, it's your main topic. You know, it's your main thing that you're interested in talking about. So it was a pretty big change. And what was your experience of it with my, with being in person for a few days? Well, it's, it's certainly informative. Um, you do have more actionable information and a more thought out idea of these things than, than most people, you know, I don't know. The environment has never been like a topic that I research very much. I mean, I'm aware of it, but I haven't researched it. So I guess part of the reason I don't research it is like, I don't trust the source that much. So it was just nice to have like a more trusted source giving me more trustworthy information. Um, so right, so educational. So this information, was there any, I'm trying to hint at something here. Was there anything else that you experienced besides facts and information? Well, yeah. I mean, we put it into action too. We, we were, we went down the farmer's market, made a few meals. It was uh, a delicious experience. Okay. Yeah. That's was, cause for me, I was, when I stayed there and let's see, we'll I have to share you, that farmer's market you took me to, well, I guess I got you to take me to. <laughs> was, we had to look it up. <laughs> yeah. Cause it, it wasn't that far from where you live. Right. And first you said, here's the keys, just drive the car and go and check it out. But I hadn't been there. And also I wanted, I wanted to bring you guys there, you and your girlfriend. Yeah. And if, if you don't mind my mentioning. Yeah. And first of all, for a New Yorker, a Southern California farmer's market is unbelievable. In November, most of the stuff, we're starting to get into the cabbage here and not really the, the glory vegetables of the summer and fall. But there it was like fruits I'd never heard of before, and tropical stuff and avocados that were like ripe because they were picked that day. And all sorts of varieties of things that I'd never come across before. And I knew I, w- I knew I liked making my stews. And I thought, one, I could make a really good stew based on the stuff here. And you guys hadn't had it. And I was interested in seeing if I could impart on you guys how to make one pretty easily. And so I left you guys with a pressure cooker. And then yeah, I was so we've happy. Used it a lot. We've made quite a few stews since then. I'm so glad to hear that. When you first texted me the picture of you with the stew, and I was like, because you could have just put it away and never used it again. So what was that experience like? What, how did you guys decide to keep using it? Well, like I said, there's nothing actionable out there. So I love actionable stuff, you know? So being able to be like, oh, this thing helps the environment when we can just do it, you know, and it's kind of fun and it tastes good. And, you know, it, it checks a lot of boxes for me and for my girlfriend too. And so we've, we've, we found it pretty enjoyable. It's also just fun or something to do together, you know, and the farmer's market's a pretty cool scene to, to go to. And, you know, we've just implemented it into our normal routine of, of fun stuff we, we do. And are you experimenting into new directions? Because I, I made a couple of dishes, but there's much more variety than I could possibly tap into in a short visit. Yeah, because my girlfriend is more the chef. So she has tried a few new things and she looks up recipes online and stuff like that. I'm kind of like, more stay faithful to the Josh formula, you know? Uh-huh. So when I do it, um, when she's not around, that's what I do. But, but usually she's kind of like more adventurous and she's, she throws in some packaged food sometimes. And 
non-Josh-worthy ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like 98%, you know, unpackaged stuff. And then did you tell your mom about it? Is that where I got that email yeah. from? Okay, Yeah, yeah. My mom is into it now too. Yeah, I got that email. I, I, I thought I should check with you and make sure, because I figured it was you, because there's not yep. many people with the name. And, and, and then she was like, how do I do this? And I was like, I don't have a recipe. And I just, here's what I do. And so I'm just emailing with this woman who lives actually not that far from me. Yeah. And she just starts doing it. And I'm like, I haven't even met this person. <laughs> and like, it's different generation and all. And, but she seems to be really getting into it and starting making some really cool stuff that I, you know, not my direction. And she's getting recipes from different places. So it seems like a family thing going on. Yeah. Uh-huh. My mom's into it. And um, I'm trying to think, have I, I haven't had any of my mom's stews yet, but I'm hoping, you know, next time I'm in New York, I'm, she'll probably have something going out there. My mom went vegan. I don't know, had to be five years ago. And she was like screaming to the heavens about how great it was, you know? Like the newly um, converted type? I mean, no, it, it wasn't like disingenuous. Like, you know, people I think have the opinion of vegans that they're usually pretty preachy and disingenuous and they're more using it as a way to like be better than you. you know? But my mom was really genuine. She's like, you know, I had this health problem and that health problem. And after a few weeks of being vegan, they are greatly improved. And, you know, she, she was just having amazement herself and she was kind of just relaying that amazement to me. And so I tried it as well, you know, so ever since then, me and my mom have been kind of on our own little vegan journey. Uh (laughs) Um, So this is kind of the next chapter in that, you know, swapping recipes and stuff like that. But yeah, it's great. And she's into it. My mom is like, you know, I'm 42 and my mom is 62. So we're almost going to like almost the same age, you know, Uh like we're both kind of middle-aged right now, you know? So it's kind of, we have fun things to do for middle-aged people, you know, like young people like to go out and get wasted. Old people like to make vegan stew, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I can see, I can imagine us having like a three-way stew off. I know, right? Yeah. Like the different techniques. And I guess your girlfriend, I don't know if you would do one and she would do one, but she, she would probably, she's done pretty much all of them. Like I'm like her assistant and I'm like the chopper, you know, and she's the one who picks most of the ingredients and then just does the spicing and flavoring and how much of this and how much of that. She's actually just really good at cooking though. Like she has a, a talent for it and she's studied it a lot. So she's really good at it. Yeah. I could tell she wasn't talking out of just like, oh, that sounds interesting. She was like con- connecting with lots of different things. Yeah. And, but, by the way, her stuff. The conversation we're having now illustrates something else that one of these things that I was talking about that I take as a given when people, people's, what the environment means to them is that there's always something like this. Once, once they get started before it seems so nebulous and hard, I don't know what it looks like before, but after they've taken steps, it becomes like this. The same with, I guess the same with, with the men who get past a certain stage with meeting women. I haven't met anyone on the other side where I don't know, I don't know how to sound. So like where we are who have this animosity toward women or it's, it's really much more curiosity. Yeah, there's, no, there's nobody in the pickup scene that hates women. It, that's the yeah. thing. Because if you hate women, you're, you're kind of not really going to get into this. You're not going to join. Yeah. It's really, really refreshing and open. And the guys I mean here, they're the best relationships. I mean, 
you and your girlfriend is like, it seemed like really very, how do I put it? Like almost like two parts of a, two sides of a coin two like the, the platonic, how Plato talked about the people meeting each other's missing halves and Jordan and Jen, his wife, they're like so great together and so forth. And, uh, I, I'm not going to go down the full, the whole, through the whole list. But yeah, well, we understand women a little better. So it's easier to be in a relationship with someone who understands you than someone who like is just kind of doesn't have a clue why you're saying what you're saying, you know? Yeah. And also I think at least for me, there's a certain amount. (laughs) It's funny. I spent a year in France. I spent a year in China just about, and I can kind of, you know, I can tell there's cultural differences. I can't tell exactly what it's like to be Chinese or what it's like to be French but I can kind of emulate in my head like what it's like to be French. And I can generally get why a French person would do something differently than an American person. That's just from some time there. I've been around women my entire life and they do things I just cannot get. I can't simulate certain things about women in my head. And I, I guess most men and women learn this about, you know, the things we just can't get. And that I think went from being like this annoying problem to being a source of, complementarity that you could enjoy. So it's, it's partly understanding, partly just accepting and, and acknowledging and celebrating the differences. Yeah. There's some very big differences between men and women that are not going to go away. And we need to, as men, we need to be aware of those and kind of cut them some slack on that or, or, you know, try to enjoy it when we can. And we hope that the women would do the same for us if, if they understand what those differences are. So it does make things easier. And, you know, now I'm going to switch over to the environment. And, and what does the environment mean to you? If it's not, it doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal compared to me, but not zero either. Well, I'll tell you, Josh, I like the environment. <laughs> it's my favorite place to live. <laughs> I don't know where I'd be without it. Yeah, I mean, um, it, I've definitely thought about it a bit more since I got some good information from you. I mean, when I was saying before that I don't trust the source, I trust the scientists. You know, um, I think a lot of the information is good. It's just the way that it's being served up is too sensational for me. And, you know, I actually stopped reading the news last year anyway. So I don't really, I'm not getting like a flow of sensationalized information about the environment. You know, I just try to pay attention to my own world to some degree. So there's a few things that I think I can do to, that are a little more environmentally friendly. The first one is work from home because it results in doing less driving and also less office space that requires heating and cooling and cleaning and money and, you know, all those types of things. So work from home is number one for me. And I, and I don't do a ton of driving, you know, I probably drive, I don't know, four days a week, maybe three. Um, Well, that's what I shoot for anyway. I guess it varies. Um, But I do like, you know, staying home and getting stuff done. And I don't need to be driving all around town all the time. Uh, So that's the second thing. And then being vegan is also good for the environment. And I didn't get into it for that reason. I got into it more for health reasons. But as I learned more about uh, the effect on the environment that eating meat has, um, I've I've noticed that, you know, being vegan really is quite quite a big difference because the red meat, um, all the, you know, the cows and all that pollution and the, uh, you know, chickens and all the pollution they create and the farm industry. I know it's quite, quite a big problem for the environment. So those are the things that I'm 
interested in right now and maintaining and expanding. And also the the vegan stew with the non-packaged food. That's something we we currently do that once a week. And uh, you know, it's a good way to like start to get used to more unpackaged foods and whole foods. And I think I hope that, you know, our comfort zone expands in the future with that kind of stuff. Cause there's a convenience factor to packaged food that's hard to give up overnight. But you know, little by little, hopefully you can kind of reduce it. So that's what I've been uh, hoping for, you know. So wow, it sounds like you've prepared a bit for this conversation of like thought about things that you could do. Is it, I mean, was well, that- even, even before your visit, I knew that I was keeping my driving down, working from home and being vegan. And those were all pretty helpful things. And what were the values that they connected with? What was driving it? Was it just, I mean, it doesn't sound like it was just like you read the news and thought oh, I should do something. It sounds like it's I guess for me, it's kind of like, I I have an overall efficiency to my lifestyle that I prefer. So, you know, less wasted time, less wasted money, less wasted garbage, you know, just an overall efficiency, I think is related to this, this effort. Okay. So efficiency, the opposite of that might be wasteful, I guess, something like that. Yeah. And I don't like... I just don't like wasting time or money or, or garbage for that matter. You know, even wa- walking up and down the stairs to take out your trash three times a week is a lot, a, a lot of wasted time. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of trash. So I wonder if, would you be up for doing one of, one of the things that you talked about that you hadn't already, that you haven't already done doing on a, on a trial basis and sharing how it went, if you're up for it? Sure. So does any of them, does any one or more of the things that you haven't done yet appeal to you as one to do? And, and what, I'd, what I'd ask is after, like we set up an amount of time that it would feel like the right amount of time to make sure it's have it take root and, and you know, you don't have to do it forever. And then have you on a second time and, and ask how it went and share what worked, what didn't work or how it felt and things like that. Yeah, I'd have to think it over. I don't, I don't have an exact idea on that yet, but I'm always willing to try new things, you know? Yeah, I'd like to do that with, the guests so that people listening, because the people listening at home, they might have similar values to yours, but it's never exactly the same. And so most of them aren't necessarily going to have had, they don't live in the same place. They don't have the same values. So I want them, if they can hear you going through the process of going from a general idea to more like to a specific smart goal, specific, measurable, actionable, uh, realistic, and time-based, then I think it it helps them to hear someone go through that so that they at home can go through it for their values, which are going to be unique to them. Yeah. I mean, for me, I look at it as, uh, you know, some of the stuff that you talked about and all the bad reactions you get and, and everybody being so apathetic about the environment, I guess that's probably the thing that I probably feel the most passionate about because I don't know, it sucks that everybody has to feel so crummy about this topic. You know, it's too bad because you don't feel bad about it. I don't now, and I did before. And for me, it was the, it wasn't intended to be this way, but it ended up being this way that with the no food packaging or the avoiding food packaging, because it's not at zero, but it was for a little while, I didn't realize I knew what I was going to give up, but I didn't know what I would gain on the other side. And it turned out that what I gained on the other side was incomparably more than I ever would have predicted or expected. And it keeps happening with people that they expect something nice and they get much more. You know, now that you uh, mentioned it, I, I think that the most uh, 
probably the largest impact I could really have would probably be to help you develop something more concrete and actionable that at the same time wouldn't, wouldn't make people so turned off as some of the uh, other stuff out there is, you know? Can you clarify? Yeah. I mean, if, remember I was saying to you out on my patio, I was saying, you know, Josh, if you gave someone a 12 month curriculum on this and it was easy to follow, they might do it. But the way you're presenting it right now is a bit more fragmented. And I don't think people can really, I don't think they can do it yet. The way you're presenting it. The good thing about the way you're presenting it is you're saying to people, Hey, try one thing. And, and you told me about a few people, one guy's picking up some trash on the beach and another guy's measuring this tree. And, you know, people have their little things that they're doing and it's making them more open to putting in more effort. But if you, you know, I'm a little biased towards 12 month curriculums, but mm-hmm. if you had something like with 12 changes that people make, you know, you, you change one thing every month and even like suburban housewives or house husbands for that matter, could just start changing the way their families do, you know, this one thing this month. And then the next month they change this other thing. Over time, you change quite a few things and, and people might not be so worried about it or feeling inconvenienced about it or feeling guilty about it or all, all these different things that cause resistance for you. And we don't, you know, it would be different than making some like guilt trippy movie, you know, that you've, you've told me how you think some of the movies are, you know, cause more pollution than they really solve with the Al Gore movie and some other movie you were telling me about, you know, it might, it might be good to have something, something simple and actionable. So to develop a course together. Yes. And the marketing for it too? Marketing, uh, we could definitely come up with some ideas. I could kind of oversee that. And, you know, I don't know much about that kind of marketing, but maybe we can figure it out. Okay. So now I've, I've two conflicting things inside me. I want to share them. One is I loved your course. It made a big difference in my life. So I want to say yes. The other is that one of the constraints I have on this is that it has to be, it can't be helped. I don't say to stop helping others, but there has to be some measurable environmental effect, a material thing. Ah, okay. We're going to be working in reverse then because this will might bring more paper into the world or something. (laughs) (laughs) So, so let's go, let's go back to um, some more measurable effect. I mean, there are some things that you were talking about that you were thinking about, like going to more days a week of the, of the stews or to you, you draw, like if, if to augment something that you're already doing counts in my book. Oh, okay. Cause I you're talking about you drive maybe. less, but maybe you could drive yet less. I mean, you drive less than you used to, but if you increase that or decrease the driving, that would be something too. Cause then it, usually each level presents slight challenges that weren't there before and getting over those challenges brings reward. Of some sort. Yeah, you know, you know what might be uh, one thing that you know might be helpful. There was something you were telling me about where the farmers markets kind of just send you a a CSA. Yeah, what what does that stand for? Community supported agriculture. Okay. And yes, that was a huge difference for me because I you just get all these vegetables and fruit, and my rule was none of it would go to waste. So I'm starting to get like tomatillos, which I'd never heard of before. And all the like kohlrabis and rutabagas. I'm like, what the, and, but then you eat it and you're like, okay, now I know how that one tastes. And the next time you get it, you're like, okay, I can do a little more than I did before. 
And meanwhile, you also get like, once I went and they had, I went at the end of the shift and they had all this basil left over that people hadn't gotten. And I walked home with like 10 pounds of basil and cilantro, which I've never had that much basil and cilantro before. And everyone's like, pesto. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do what everyone says. I'm not going to do, (laughs) you know, unique. And so that's when I started learning how to make these vegan cheeses with like the pesto flavored. It's like nut and nutritionally based. And anyway, what happens is you end up getting a lot of new vegetables and fruit that you're, you just, in my case, you just have to figure out how to make it. And that's a lot of my education. So they kind of send you some food and it's like, whatever they want to send you like, you don't tell them what to send. Right. Right. What happens is there's a, in my case, my, with my main summer fall one, there's a farm uh, about an hour outside the city and they produce enough food for maybe a thousand families. So before the planting season, you pay them whatever. I mean, the cost is like something like $500. And then, then they plant and now their risk is gone. They're paid flat no matter what. There could be floods that year. There could be famine, but they, get, they already got paid. So their risk goes down. And then starting a few months later, when the stuff starts coming up, they drive down to a drop-off point and they drop off, I guess it's, the thousand families are all around the farm. So they just drop off the ones near the West Village in Chelsea. And I go and there's all these boxes and it says like one box is filled with, um, eggplants and one box is filled with uh, red leaf lettuce and another box is filled with zucchinis. And it says like three zucchinis, one red leaf lettuce, two eggplants. And I just bring my bag and I fill up with whatever my allotment is that week. And I don't know until I get there. And now they, they've been doing it for over 20 years. So they, they plant things to time it. So that you're getting a variety. Like they put a lot of effort into it to make right, sure. Right. And now that's how mine works. That's how my summer fall one works. I got a winter one which is, it's kind of similar, but it's once every six, seven weeks. And their variety is much less because winter, it means it's potatoes and carrots and onions and some rutabagas. And in the spring, it starts picking up and getting more of the like green, exciting vegetables. Now it's a lot of parsnips and, but you know, that's what's here. And there's another one that um, some deliver to your home. I don't do the delivery. I don't do home delivery because it's all walking distance for me. I mean, it's like a mile each way, but I like it. So if you look up Southern California, there's going to be tons of CSAs, I'm sure. And it ends up being, I've been doing it for years. And every year it's been been like not a couple of bumper years of just tremendous output. And a couple of years of just kind of neutral. I got what I paid for, but usually you get, I end up getting more than I paid for. And then I go to the farm and I, meet the farmers and I look at the, I see the vegetables growing and I get to eat the cherry tomatoes right off the vine. And there's that whole, and then last time I brought my mom and my sister and they like it. And so it's more family. It's, it's just what happens when you connect with the environment. Gotcha. So if joining a CSA was a thing, then it was an option. Then I would, I, I'm kind of, I was about to say, I highly recommend a CSA, but I, I try not to recommend what people's challenge would be, but that one would fit yeah, all. Yeah, that, that sounds like it'd be a good challenge for me. I'll find find the CSA and figure out how it works and pick it up or get it sent or wh- whatever it is and learn how to use those fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, it's a bit of a project, but I think I can figure it out. Okay, cool. So normally I ask the person about how long they think it would take, but in your case, you don't really know, but we'll also be in touch. 
Yeah, probably in about, I would say in like two months, I'll probably be like, all right, the CSA was joined. There's stuff coming. Here's what I cooked or here's, I couldn't figure out how to use this one. You know, I would think that's probably how long it'll take to like get fully implemented. Okay, cool. So we'll set up, we'll talk otherwise, but also we'll set up another call to talk about the experience of setting up a CSA. And ah, this is really cool. No one else has set up their CSA before. I've had guests who have gone with me to farmer's markets and talked about that experience, but this is a new one. So I'm look forward to hearing it. Not that well, I already got, you know, the pressure cooker and the cutting board and, uh, you know, I'm ready to make stew. So the CSA should fit right in. Awesome. And then I'm definitely going to follow up. I'm thinking it's almost two hours now. So for the sake of the listeners, I, I don't want to go on too much longer. Although I know Joe Rogan and Sam Harris, they all go long, but I'd like to close with, is there anything I didn't think to ask or anything you want to bring up that is worth bringing up or things we touched on that we could have gone on longer? Well, let's see. I, th- I think the listeners should probably give you some credit for coming out as a you know, guy who has studied dating. It's not easy to go through that process and it's not easy to go public because people do get the wrong idea and get a little crazy about it sometimes. But you know, you're a public figure and I think that you know, you're taking a risk. So I, I just want to congratulate you on having the balls to do that. <laughs> I'm not a public figure, so uh, you know. Um, but I use a fake name. I don't know. I'm not coming out public and telling people, hey, guess what? I teach people how to pick up girls, you know? So, uh, yeah, you guys all listening should, uh, you have the gift of Josh. And uh, this is what made Josh, Josh. So love it or hate it. It was uh, an important part of the recipe. So enjoy and be open-minded. And, you know, there's so many things out there that you might be writing off that you could learn from it. And studying attraction is one of them. And that goes for females too. Women have a, women can learn a lot from this subject of study. And uh, a lot of them are close-minded to it. You know, men are even more close-minded, but most people are close-minded um, because it takes, it requires you to put your ego aside to uh, acknowledge that you're not good at something and you need to improve. Most people don't like to do that. So congrats on Josh, uh, to Josh on going through that process and uh, even going public with it. Wow. Not too many people do that. Oh man, I appreciate you sharing that and you're saying that. It's, uh, yeah, it reminds me of the very first time that I went to my very first meeting after having read the game and learning that there are groups of men, I guess this doesn't happen anymore, and they would meet weekly or monthly. And so at the New York one, I went online and said, I'd like to come to one of the meetings. And the guy called me up because they would interview to make sure it wasn't like, I don't know, some reporter doing an expose or something like that. And the guys asked me questions of who I am and my background and stuff. And I go, I said something like, I'm kind of nervous about this. And he goes, yeah, you have to say that you suck at something that you want to be good at. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, I really, <laughs> like, this is not a part of my life that I'm, that I'm really happy with at all. Now it is. Yeah. Well, everybody sucks in the beginning at everything you try to do, you know? Well, Brad, thank you very much. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, thank you, Josh, for having me. I hope you enjoyed this inside, unguarded view of the top echelons of teaching men relationship skills from two guys who had to learn it themselves and chose to do it deliberately and devote years of our lives to it. And we got results, vastly improved relationships, especially with women. Brad's passion to improve himself and others 
as well as his effectiveness, is rare, even for me immersed in some of the most renowned educational communities of the world. At the foundation, we learned and coached social and emotional skills of empathy, compassion, attraction, yes, seduction, fitness, self-awareness, and many things fundamental to all relationships. Plus, you learned a big piece of my background. Maybe you don't like it, but it's improved my life more than almost anything, and it's led my clients to keep coming back. If I haven't bored everyone, someday I'll have to share about sports, which is equally meaningful for me in my life. Anyway, I expect this sharing will open me to share more clearly what a lot of my relationships are about. I expect that the sharing with Brad and all of you now will open for me to share more clearly where a lot of my leadership comes from. I also look forward to hearing about Brad's experience after I did my famous no-packaging vegetable stew, cooking for him and his girlfriend at his place, and they started picking up on it. I really look forward to hearing how that goes for him. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.